Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the program. Today I'm featuring excerpts from a panel I moderated with Federal Chief Information Security Officers. The panel took place at the CISO Summit sponsored by the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, or ATARC, in Washington, D.C. First, you will hear from Rod Turk, the Acting Chief Information Officer and the Chief Information Security Officer at the Commerce Department. One of the big things in the government today is talking about IT modernization. But the MGT Act, you've got a, 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 a belief in the cybersecurity world that if you modernize your legacy systems, that your cybersecurity posture is going to be better, which I believe it will. We at the Department of Commerce. Now, you wouldn't think Department of Commerce is leaning forward in, when it comes to modernizing IT, but we've actually done some pretty significant things as it relates to, uh, to modernizing. Just as a metric, roughly 35% or so of our millions of billions of dollars that we spend each year uh, in IT, 35% of it is in development. So that means that 65% is in operations and maintenance, right? When you take a look at the federal government across the board, that development percentage is roughly 17 or 18% with the remainder being in maintenance. So from a commerce standpoint, we're doing an awful lot of development, an awful lot of changes in our environment. Now, I will say that a significant piece of that is census. Uh, we're preparing significantly for the 2020 census that's coming up here in a couple of years. There's a major test of the census systems coming up here this, just this spring. And so a lot of that development, a lot of that, uh, the changes fall into census, but also at the Patent and Trademark Office, PTO is uh, in the midst of a significant uh, effort to modernize their systems to be able to assess patents and assess trademarks. There's other pockets of, of investment as well. A lot of that is in NOAA. NOAA is replacing a lot of its legacy systems, consolidating data centers, uh, those kinds of things. Um, so while you wouldn't be thinking of Commerce as maybe one of those agencies that's actually you know, moving forward in the modernization piece, we actually really are in several specific and very significant areas uh, leaning forward in that modernization process. We expect then that our cybersecurity posture should improve. Risk should be reduced, never go to zero, but risks should be reduced as we move forward. All right, Rod, now, one of the interesting things about the modernization side of this is can you turn off old systems, right? Can you go from, hey, we have this new, we have this new system, are we running parallel? Can you talk maybe a little bit about how you guys are doing that? Is, is that something that NOAA or Census, I know Census tends to do a lot of maybe new development, not old development to replace old, but the modernization side of it? Yeah, in, in, in census, for example, when you have a decennial census, it happens once every 10 years. You kind of really, every 10 years, modernize your system to be able to do that census, right? So we're moving significantly to the cloud. Uh, we have handhelds that the enumerators are going to be using to actually take the census. If we need to go to the uh, actual door-to-door -door to get that information. We're also doing something in this census that we've never done before, and that's asking folks to come in on the internet. Internet self-response, it's called. And so we're gonna be mailing out, census is going to be mailing out cards that says, please provide your census information on the internet. Send it to us. That's far, far, far cheaper. Far more secure, frankly. Um, 
because we've actually segmented that architecture. We're actually looking at where we need to put our trusted internet connection to make sure that all the connections of all of our devices are coming back in through a TIC. That's, a, that's a, a big issue because as you move to the cloud, you think about where that TIC point of presence really needs to be in order to be able to do that. That's a significant uh, issue for us. Haven't solved it yet, but we're talking uh, in, in very great detail with DHS and with OMB as to how to make that work. All right, very nice. Now I know that the tick is gonna is a big big issue for cloud, so I'm sure that will come up later. Chris Walshin from HHS. HHS has got a, a ton of big initiatives going on. Let me just highlight a few. We are too embracing the IT uh, modernization uh, tidal wave that is uh, engulfing the government, preparing business cases to be considered by the panel uh, running the uh, MGT uh, investment so that when uh, when the money is uh, provided and we are ready to go with uh, our top 10 priorities for modernization. Modernization does mean retiring and, and uh, getting rid of old legacy systems that we cannot afford to patch anymore. And in the case of HHS, with over 600 systems of record, about um, 200 of them classified as legacy IT, 99 of those classified as high value assets. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to uh, protecting those systems, especially the ones that uh, are, are public facing that uh, uh, interact with uh, the citizenry. Uh, those are highest on our list for modernization. Uh, we're working with uh, cybersecurity uh, work groups across the healthcare vertical to understand and act upon the uh, Healthcare Cybersecurity Task Force report many of you uh, have seen and, and have asked questions about. There are a hundred activities in there that have been segregated into things that HHS can do, things that uh, the healthcare sector can do, and then a third group that may require additional legislative support to accomplish. Um, we're working on information sharing and trying to raise the conscious level of cybersecurity preparedness, readiness, and resilience in the healthcare sector. We're not talking about the large medical groups, big pharma, big healthcare, uh, big insurance who have mature IT and uh, security staffs. No, we're talking about the 75% of the healthcare ecosystem that don't have full-time IT staff and don't have a security person. Trying to help those offices, those medical practices to be more prepared for the next want to cry or petcha or not petcha. Uh, I see my peer and uh, colleague Emery Shulak in the uh, audience from CMS. Uh, Emery would tell you that, uh, I think, uh, would tell you that uh, there is a ton of work going on, identifying centers of excellence among our operating divisions. What's that mean? Emery and, and the CMS team are experts on fraud detection. And they're partnering with the VA on understanding how fraud affects the delivery payment and, and uh, other aspects of health care and, and defeating that fraud. Uh, somebody from the FDA, if they were in the room, they would tell you that they're working hard on preventing the theft of intellectual property that is owned by big pharmaceutical companies, medical device manufacturers, bad actors who want to steal that information because they don't want to do the R&D themselves and then just market products off that stolen information. FDA is worried about protecting intellectual property. The Centers for Disease Control and National Institutes of Health 
trying to solve for cancer and Alzheimer's and prepare, and prepare for the next Zika or Ebola, sharing huge quantities of technical information across states and across international borders, doing so securely so that the researchers they're collaborating with around the world get the information they need in a timely manner and can act upon it, but deny access to that information to others who might want to steal it or ransom it. So there is a ton of activity going on at HHS. Uh, Emery and I and the other CISOs are working together to, uh, to stay on top of it all. And just as soon as we have a budget, we're gonna go do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we can say that for almost everybody. Uh, Chris, the one follow-up I wanna go back to is when you talk about the waiting for the MGT, you're not really waiting. I mean, no. No, nothing is just uh, static. So maybe talk a little bit about some internal efforts you're doing to say, okay, we have those 99 high-valued systems. How do we improve them? How do we improve the, the next level down and the next level down? Great question. So I work for uh, Beth Ann Kaloran, the CIO at HHS, a uh, visionary leader who has anticipated this, uh, this uh, effort to modernize HHS infrastructure for, for some time. She has brought together the uh, chief information officers of all our operating divisions, and uh, for the past year, year and a half, have been focusing work groups and effort to understand what needs to be modernized first at HHS. What legacy systems are out there that we cannot afford to operate anymore? When you think about the kinds of interaction that HHS has with the American public, every event from life through death has some element involving HHS, whether it's a payer, a provider, some patient-oriented service. HHS has this 360-degree view of the healthcare vertical. And we interact with all those patients, payers, and providers to make sure that the health care they get, the payments that they get, are, are authorized, they're safe, and, and meant for the people that are supposed to receive them. Beth and the CIO group have been working very hard on understanding which of those systems are, present the most high risk, the systems that are still operating on Windows 7 or Windows Vista or some unsecured operating system uh, that are buried so deep in a network that we think that they can't be gotten to but we just can't afford to, to live with that risk anymore. We've got to put them on modern infrastructure in the cloud. 20% of our production systems are in the, in the cloud. HHS has authorized about 12 cloud service providers. There's over 90 in FedRAMP uh, altogether, another 60 in the pipeline. HHS is moving to the cloud in an aggressive manner. We think that's the key to leveraging modernization funds uh, to get HHS to a place where we're more secure and the risk is more manageable. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated with Federal Chief Information Security Officers. You just heard from Chris Walshin, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Department of Health and Human Services. Earlier, you heard from Rod Turk, the Acting Chief Information Officer and CISO at the Commerce Department. Policies issued by American General Life Insurance Company, Houston, Texas. Not available in all states. For details, visit AIGdirect.com. It takes a lot of courage to face your own death, but I'm glad I finally did. See, I was putting off getting life insurance to protect my family, even though I knew it was important. Then my neighbor's husband died. I watched her struggle emotionally and financially. It really made me face reality. If my husband died, how would I pay the mortgage, the car payments, or keep up the life the kids and I had? 
I realized I needed to get us life insurance right away. So I called AIG Direct. In less than five minutes, I had a quote. I was shocked at how affordable it is. Just $14 a month for $250,000 of term life coverage. I feel so much better knowing my family has protection. Call AIG Direct right now for a free no-obligation quote. The call takes less than five minutes, and you can save up to 70%. Call now, 1-800-900-1904. That's 1-800-900-1904. 1-800-900-1904. Message and data rates may apply. Guys, this may be the last time you ever have to think about hair loss, because I'm telling you, Bosley is the real deal. They're giving men their hair back permanently. They're real hair. All it takes to get started on the hair gain train is a single text message. You'll get an absolutely free information kit and a free gift card when you text EDGE to 85850. Check them out now. Bosley will show you for free how great your hair could look. Dude, this isn't your dad's hair loss treatment. People all over the country trust Bosley because they're America's number one hair restoration expert. Ahead of the curve with the latest technology. And the best part, Bosley's solution is permanent. You're going to love what they'll do for your hair. So drop what you're doing long enough to send a text. Get your free information kit and gift card for $250 off by texting EDGE to 85850. Don't forget, that's E-D-G-E to 85850. CompSec is one of the most trusted sources for solving complex IT problems. Started in 1997 to address specific customer issues in the intelligence community, CompSec has remained customer-facing and mission-focused. CompSec provides an unparalleled depth of knowledge and insight into the intelligence community for their customers and partners like CA Technologies. Learn how CompSec and CA Technologies are partnering to bring solutions to the federal marketplace. Learn more at CompSecInc.com. That's CompSecInc.com. Tom Temin here, coming up on Friday's Federal Drive. Customs and Border Protection boosts the use of facial recognition under its popular Global Entry Trust and Traveler program. Plus, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is helping the Veterans Affairs Department learn techniques for pinpointing fraud and abuse when paying for private health care providers. Join me Friday morning starting at 6 for the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Federalnewsradio.com at 1500 a.m. Like Federal News Radio on Facebook for a look at some of the top federal stories each day. Plus, we'll give you a taste of what goes on behind the scenes. Find us at Facebook.com slash Federal News Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated with the Federal Chief Information Security Officers. The panel took place at the CISO Summit, sponsored by ATARC in Washington, D.C., in this part of the show, you first hear from Mattel Desai, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. I think we've talked a lot about the modernization efforts that a lot of agencies are doing, and we're kind of in the same boat. One thing that we've been doing, so probably about a couple, few years back, there's a huge data call about identifying high-value assets. For us, we started a journey called information governance. We started looking at the life cycle of data. How do we create it? How do we store it? How do we disseminate that information internally and externally within our constituents, fellow agencies, so on and so forth, and how do we retain and eliminate that data? So what we began was we started doing an inventory of all our data sets. So we knew off the bat that we had a classification authority, so you know your basic PII data sets. We use something called critical energy infrastructure information or electric information, which is CEII, which is sensitive. We were able to identify within each program office that we went into and look at the types of data categories 
and the types of documents that each individual works with or creates or stores or disseminates. With that, that created a huge information inventory where not only do I know where my high value assets are sitting from an electronic standpoint and also from a hard copy standpoint, but what is my next approach to do? So now I know that my most sensitive data is sitting in one program office. Do I place more preventive, detective controls around that and spend my resources accordingly for that? It's been a long effort. We have now effectively identified all the assets across the organization. What our next steps now is looking at what kind of security controls are we gonna put in place? That comes around you know, your SIM tools, that comes around your uh, DLP data loss prevention tools, and so on and so forth. One thing that we're seeing, we've been working a lot of hand in hand, not only with DHS, but actually with NARA, and looking at our disposition authorities. The problem is, is that you know, a lot of our government data has been around for years and years and years, and starts piling up. You know, FERC essentially, to an extent, is a law firm. So we have thousands of documents that we handle, documents such as hydropower licensing efforts, to documents that show um, the vulnerability of dams that we do when we do hydropower inspections of all the dams in the United States, or selected dams in the United States. So now what we're doing at this point, and my team working in conjunction with NARA and stuff, we're starting to eliminate some of the hard copy stuff, moving that over to, to, to NARA, doing our disposition authorities as we should, and also now in the same token, in parallel, we're starting to put in the tools like the DLP and the SIM to start doing the monitoring of that data sets and how we're effectively protecting that sensitive data. All right, so that leads a ton of questions. When you talk about the inventory and you realize, so first of all, I guess two questions. One, any surprises? You find anything you were like, whoa, and the second, this is the, maybe the harder one, when those, you talk about those next steps, we have a mix of industry, we have a mix of uh, federal employees, academic. What's the process by, okay, you can identify the next steps, but how do you implement those next steps? Yeah, so, so any surprises first? Absolutely. It's funny because it took us a long time to kind of go through each program office, doing the interviews, the inspection of documents, and going through that. And we started understanding some of the business processes. So now my security team is kind of really injected into the business process. We're understanding what they're doing on a day to day basis. Things that we didn't know they were doing, you know, and how they were transmitting data or how we were actually effectively protecting that data. That opened up a lot of eyes for us. And the next steps that we started taking from that is now understanding, okay, because of the inventory that we have, now I know that 60% or let's just say 30% of my most sensitive assets, high value assets are sitting in one program office. We're focusing our efforts, you know, like as Chris said, when, once the budget gets passed, uh, we're focusing our efforts of putting in the security controls in place. And we're taking a systematic approach by categorizing our, our, our most sensitive data types. And we've kind of done a very rudimentary, you know, PII's rate, top rated, CII's number two, so on and so forth, and placing those controls in, in, in that area first. At some point, you know, we don't want to be the bleeding edge in some of the narrow standards because we've classified our most sensitive data sets first. But at some point, after we've kind of put the controls in on our high value assets, we're going to go back and look at some of the other, other sensitive categories that, to see whether what controls we need to put in place for those as well. Bobby Stemfley is next. She was a former DHS person. And I told her, I would just every time there's a question, I would say, well, what, is, what do they do at DHS? And her response was, yeah, I don't work there I anymore. Don't work there anymore. <laughs> Please ask somebody who works there. Please ask somebody there. you go. But uh, I've known Bobby, I guess it's been like 10, 15 yeah, years. Yeah, it's been a long time. She's one of the smartest people in the cyber world, so I will let her take it away from there. So you'll notice uh, in the electric company in Sesame Street area, there was always uh, one of these things is not like the other. Mm -hmm. I am not a federal CISO, right? There's a clear sort of initial statement. I have the privilege right now of working at the Software Engineering Institute for the 
uh, first ever CERT organization, right? So in the dawn of cybersecurity, we were there. And, uh, and it really is a, a wonderful privilege. And so one of the great things about this position and my previous experience, both having been a CIO and a CISO in the Defense Department and uh, running a fairly large part of the security program at DHS, uh, is I really get to see the innovations that no one gets credit for. It's, it's, people go, oh, the federal government, nothing innovative happens in the federal government. And they could not be further from wrong, could they? Right. Lots of innovative things happen in the federal government. And I, I try to think about this problem in a, a broad set of, of ways. And you've heard pieces of it here. Um, one is, it's great. We've cried for a decade about uh, having to move beyond mandatory controls. Don't tell me that this control is more important than this control because you don't understand my environment. Give me the flexibility to understand what happens in my environment. And that's happened. And wow, now that we've got what we've asked for, uh, how do we handle this, this sort of newfound opportunity space that's there? What the demand on the people to make these very difficult arguments and trades again and again and again is really, I think, one of the complexities that's facing us as, a, um, as an enterprise. Um, come up the stack a little bit, you hear a bunch about infrastructure. We're modernizing infrastructure all over the place, cloud, um, mobile, moving uh, to more app-oriented activities, or really modernizing all over the place. And think about managing the complexity, not just managing the complexity of, of legacy and modernization simultaneously, but managing the complexity of changing your architecture and business processes. Because you do this in a lift and shift model, you don't actually improve security a lot. You improve security a little. So what does that look like? How do you make decisions around that? And we, we get to think about that a lot in, uh, um, in the Software Engineering Institute. And how do you think about it in terms of modern software development practices? The entire software tool chain is being automated so that you can do development, we can do security checks as we go along. And, and what does that mean? And how do we keep as the security teams from being what I call the department of no, the great big 180 at the end where you feel like you've worked with the business and they, you understand what they're doing and then all of a sudden at the end, they feel like you guys are good teams and you say, yep, can't do it. That undermines everybody in that situation and that I think is one of the very real things we're, we're taking on and facing. And finally, the information and the data. Remember the video tidal wave? Somebody said we were gonna have a video tidal wave <laughs> about 10 years ago. We have a data tidal wave, don't we? Just understanding where it is, understanding how to use it, understanding how to engage it. Great opportunity space, right? We've got some really uh, groundbreaking work being done all over the community. I get to brag about um, my part of the community a little bit in machine learning and sort of the application of machine learning to these data sets. And moving beyond just applying business intelligence models to security, which is sort of where it started and where, where the SIM sort of community started, but actually moving into uh, next generation machine learning in this kind of space. Not all the lights are green on the road here, but there's some really groundbreaking work that's being done that'll be drawn back in and applied into these activities. And then understanding, documenting, clarifying the complexity and the cost of that complexity to both security and operations. But we can make this environment so fragile, so complex, 
that it's too hard to operate, that it's too hard to secure. So this is this tightrope that we are all walking in this community about how to manage in in all of the things changing at the same time, having to sustain operations, having to understand the business process, having to capture all of the data, right? It, it's a hard job uh, that we're all, all really pushing at. Uh, but I really think that the uh, opportunity space ahead of us is uh, far greener than the 30-year you know, history we've had behind us. So long as we remember two things. The adversary is attacking. They are attacking weakness in the deployed in the deployed base, right? We see that, the vulnerabilities that are occur they're going after. The other thing though that they're really focused on is the architecture trades you make. I am a firm believer that we have to modernize, develop, do things better, faster, stronger, but we, we are never going to design ourselves out of an adversary action because they're attacking the architecture decisions that we make. And we will always make those trades. Even if, you, even if you have the perfect security controls in place, we will always make those kinds of architecture trades because this color should be green versus blue. We have $5, not $5.50. We have these users uh, that aren't all in the same place in the world, right? There are a whole range of them. And we have to think about, from a security perspective and from a usability perspective, how to make the default decision easiest and the most secure decision. Excellent, now we're gonna to come to your questions. I'm gonna ask Bobby one, one follow-up real quick. When you talk about the software tool chain and, and the automation, really what you're talking about there in many ways is the, this idea of agile iterative development and, and that's gaining obviously a lot of ground. From a cyber perspective, well maybe what you guys are doing at CERT, how far along are we from your perspective what, what's the next step? So there's a whole body of work around secure DevOps and, and DevOps. And, and Agile and DevOps are not exactly the same. Please don't, uh, don't let anybody walk away here from here uh, with a quote that I said they are the same, because they're not. But there is a whole wealth of uh, opportunity space in that, both for ensuring that you're designing with more security in mind, you're building with more security in mind, and you're more in the earliest, earlier in the process, you're being able to validate that those security features are in place in the software as you go along. And if you can do that every day, if you can do that every week, we are far beyond where we are in, uh, in the sort of waterfall or traditional methods where you're checking at operational test or you're checking at, uh, at uh, the beta version of the activities that when users touch it, we're, we're able to do a lot more in the automation space. And we've got to get the people focused on the people-rich problems and out of the problems that we can put machines on. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated with federal CISOs. You just heard from Bobby Stemfley, the director of the Computer Emergency Readiness Team, or CERT division at Carnegie Mellon University. She's also the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Office of Cybersecurity and Communications at the Homeland Security Department. Earlier, you heard from Mattel Desai, the CISO at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. How are autonomous technologies advancing in healthcare? What is being done to enhance medical device design? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Professors Jin O'Han and Manifa Van Cook from the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Maryland. Next week on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
Find your innovation and imagination at CACI. I love working at CACI because I'm adding value to an important cause, our nation's security. CACI allows me to be creative and have flexible hours. My manager is supportive and my coworkers are like family. Our leadership supports and encourages professional growth and development. When it comes to my lifestyle and my career, CACI just fits. If you're looking for something greater, visit careers.caci.com. CACI, ever vigilant. I'm Linda Carr, Managing Member of Advanced Alliance Solutions Team, AAST, and the President of Technical and Management Resources, TMR. AAST is a joint venture of small businesses dedicated to providing the federal government with exceptional services under the GSA Alliance Small Business Contract. If you are looking for a small business teaming partner, consider the power of the Advanced Alliance Solutions Team. For potential small business teaming opportunities, contact them at advancedalliance.com. That's advancedalliance.com. The Pentagon and Beyond, brought to you by Northrop Grumman. The Commandant of the Marine Corps has suspended a top advisor pending a Department of Defense review of allegations of a hostile workplace in the Corps' Legislative Affairs Office. General Robert Neller removed Brigadier General Norman Cooling from his position as Legislative Assistant to the Commandant after the Senate Armed Services Committee asked the Secretary of Defense to look into the command climate Cooling created during his tenure as Head of Legislative Affairs. I'm J.J. Green. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com performance. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts from a panel I moderated with federal CISOs. The panel took place at the CISO Summit, sponsored by the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, or ATARC, in Washington, D.C. In this part of the show, the CISO panel of Rod Turk from Commerce, Chris Walshin from HHS, Mattel Desai from FERC, and Bobby Stemfley from Carnegie Mellon, and a former DHS cyber executive, answer questions from the audience. Okay, Tom Harrell, National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences at the NIH. My question is, with the census coming up, have we considered the mosaic effect, especially with our move to the cloud, and how we adequately define what a high-value asset is now? Rod. <laughs> have we adequately defined what a high-value asset is now? That's a mighty fine question, because beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right, in a lot of ways. We have done a very detailed review of our assets, come up with 62 different uh, rate, rated and ranked high-value assets. Um, the top 10 or so of those have been provi provided to DHS for their cyber hygiene process. And those 10 have been systematically reviewed with a, uh, an architecture review as well as penetration testing reviews from a high-value standpoint. So is that perfect? I don't think there's any cybersecurity person that's ever going to tell you anything is perfect. Are there high-value assets issues that, that change? Yes. We are very, very focused from a census standpoint at making sure that census is as secure as we possibly can. So uh, we've had interactions with a wide variety of uh, cybersecurity functions, if you will, uh, at DHS, 
uh, at OMB, at any of the three-letter agencies that you can think of from a classified standpoint. The interesting thing about that is, is in a lot of ways, cybersecurity is backward-focused. It's history-focused in a lot of ways. You don't really you know, get the cert, at least in my experience, involved until something happens. It's almost like a law enforcement kind of deal. What we're interested in in the census and what we're exploring is how to have a more future focus. In other words, we know where some of the, um, you know, the adversaries, what their interests are, where in historically they have gone in the past. So can we, as a federal government, take a look at what we're seeing, where we think cybersecurity is going to go, and then predict who, what, when those cybersecurity events might happen, and how to protect yourself in advance of the actual event. That's something that we don't do well. Frankly, in my experience, it's kind of making some people's minds explode um, because they just they can't get their, their, their mind around preparing for something they don't know about. But that's kind of where we're going, and we're looking at this very closely with census. We've had some very interesting discussions with you know, some agencies about how to do this, and we're pursuing it. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I'm not sure what you meant by the mosaic, so if you want to kind of expound on that. Okay, the mosaic effect occurs when you have data that may not identify specifically an individual, but other data that exists in combination with that data can actually <laughs> define a person. So you're talking about aggregation of data, aggregation of information. Precisely, inadvertent, yeah. mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. But with the census coming up and with GDPR, how, as a research organization, what are your thoughts on how we ought to look at this aggregation of data in our movement to the cloud? Mm -hmm. Well, Meltdown Inspector kind of puts a little bit of a focus on that, doesn't it? In terms of, uh, you know, cross-exposure of information in a multi-tenant operation. Um, so there's, you know, that, that kind of applies there in my mind. Census has some very specific legal requirements in their data. Title 13, Title 26, dealing with IRS, dealing with census data, and there are very significant, I don't remember what they are, but they're very significant penalties for any individual who exposes that information. So yes, that is a concern, but I think my answer to that is that you, you have to be ever vigilant, you have to have the, the, the greatest level of cybersecurity standards, policies, tools that you possibly can, and uh, you put those in place. And then you be vigilant, you know, in how you implement that and how you monitor. All right, anyone else on the panel real quick? No, okay, another question. Hi, I'm Mari Spina from MITRE Cyber. So in your move to modernize, right, the quest my question is, does the cloud still scare you? I'll take that one. Uh, <laughs> as, I, as I mentioned in, uh, in my opening comments, HHS is a uh, FedRAMP authorizer <laughs> along with GSA. We have about 12 cloud service providers in our portfolio, including Amazon, Salesforce, uh, Verizon, and others. There's over 90 FedRAMP authorized cloud service providers. There's another 60 or so in the pipeline to be authorized. There's a new FedRAMP Lite program, a FedRAMP uh, program for 
organizations seeking FedRAMP authorization that have a smaller subset or low risk offering to uh, help the federal government move to cyber. The cloud doesn't scare me. The, the Moving to the cloud when that movement is documented in sufficient uh, articles of uh, performance work statements, of shared and mutual understanding of security requirements, of uh, indemnification if something bad happens. If all the requirements of, of a, uh, a project to move a legacy or premise-based system to the cloud are met, it makes sense to do it because government cannot afford to maintain this legacy environment that we have anymore. So it doesn't scare me. So a couple thoughts on that. I mean, to me, it's a, it's a question of trust. It really boils down to trust. And, and the, the, the proposition is, do we in the federal government trust industry to have our best interests in mind to keep our data that we have in the cloud secure? Now, let's decompose that a little bit. While I don't know for sure, and maybe Bobby knows a little bit more than I do about this, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the large providers have tools that they're not going to tell us about. They have procedures, they have processes, they have things that they use in their environment to make sure they're not exfiltrated. And guess what? They're not going to tell us because if they tell us, then it's in the public domain and they've lost their competitive advantage. You know, we have commercial folks out here. You understand how that works. So, so it's really the fear of the unknown in a certain sense and do we know what the providers, how they are going to secure this data and whether or not then we as a federal government have an element of trust to make sure that, you know, or to give us a level of, of satisfaction that cybersecurity has been implemented. I think that's going to be, personally, this is Rod Turk talking, I think that's going to be a significant issue as we move into the next five to ten years in terms of trusting industry with the federal government because frankly those tools that are that are implemented by the major providers I don't think we're going to be able to afford them. To Rod and Chris's point um, and I like to thank Chris because we, we like to use their agency sponsored ATOs a lot of the services that we put into place at FERC and we're actually for kind of moving into that cloud-based model and our architecture as we move some of our mission critical work sets. One thing that I had opened up with earlier is we have to continue to foster that partnership between the public and private sector. These threats are going to keep coming and coming, and we need to work together to get to a common ground to reduce that risk. For an agency that's small like FERC or any other small agencies that we have, if I can outsource some of my security services, and there is trust, and we can build that trust between a cloud service provider, well, that gives me more time to redirect my resources to focus on things that are sitting within my infrastructure. I've outsourced some of those security services. I have reasonable assurance that they're going to do the right thing. To Rod's point, you know, some of the technology we haven't seen, I feel like probably, personally, I feel like some of them can do better security work than some of the federal government agencies that we do in-house, just because of a limited budget and resources that we have. Bobby, you going to jump in? Because I was going to ask you a follow-up, but go ahead. Okay, so what I, when I think about cloud and the things that people uh, wrap into that conversation, um, <laughs> You have to tease it apart a little bit, right? It's the, uh, does multi-tenancy scare you? Does virtualization scare you? Does the idea of a scarce resource that you have to vie for, whether it be compute or, uh, or person, scare you? You have that problem even if you own everything inside your own data center. And so this idea that cloud, this thing out there, 
might be scary is, is I think a little bit of a misnomer. You have to really think about what it is inside your operating model that you can accept and how you take it forward and where you'd rather spend the people costs and the dollar costs in, in that space. Follow-up question, I can't wait. No, 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 you, you kind of <laughs> answered it. All right, another question? Hello, good morning. Uh, Mike Wilburn with the FBI. So I've heard a lot of talk about uh, assets, identifying critical assets. Obviously, we've got to box things up so we can figure out what we're trying to protect and things like that. <coughs> My question is really about high-level assets are really just targets, right? The way to get to a high-level asset is through a low-level asset. So how do you guys, if somebody could speak to how you guys identify trust relationships between these assets and deal with tracking that uh, and securing those kinds of relationships? Because as I said, the way to get to a high-value asset is through a low-value asset and some trust relationship that may or may not need to be there. Let me give you uh, a thought. So obviously, the, to me, the answer obviously is know your architecture. If Target had known their architecture, maybe they wouldn't have gotten exfiltrated, right, through an air conditioning company. But, but there's another issue here, though, that I'd like to touch on, something that the FBI does, by the way, and that is supply chain. Can you trust what you're putting into your environment that it doesn't come with some kind of a piece of malware, some kind of vulnerability right from the get-go. And I'm not even talking about necessarily infrastructure devices, whatever. I may even be talking about personnel. I may be talking about relationships within a company that you are having services provided. You know, is there a threat based upon where that company has allegiances to? Um, going back to your question about census earlier, uh, in many cases, uh, we look at the new uh, companies that we're dealing with in census. We look at new devices, and we run them through a supply chain. For the most part, open source. If we need to, we'll go to the classified side. And I will tell you, we have found things that make my hair curl. And uh, we have, uh, in, in some cases, not allowed that particular capability, service, to uh, come into our environment because of that risk. I think at HHS, we have a healthy amount of distrust when it comes to low-level systems, high-level systems, and the operating divisions communicating with the headquarters and vice versa. Uh, for some time, uh, the, until, and including today, our operating divisions, many of the larger ones, are uh, independently managed funded with uh, their own sponsors in the, in the federal government and Congress who have unique missions that don't necessarily translate to what other parts of HHS is doing. So when the headquarters asks for access to a particular system or a set of data, the natural pushback, the healthy tension I call it, is questions from the operating divisions, why do you want access to this data? What do you need it for? And I've noticed that the operating divisions ask that of their third parties that they do business with and with other government agencies who want access into what the operating divisions are doing. So a careful examination of those connections, uh, not just around the high value assets, but, but low value assets as well, a healthy distrust I think is a good thing. Let me quick follow because the gentleman has a question here. Mattel, when you guys went through your data, I think one of the big concerns I think this gentleman is referring to is kind of like if you can get in, if you can breach a low level asset, can you get to the high level? Is that kind of what you guys were looking at, saying what is our high-value assets and, and what happens if and where does it exist? And You know, when we did the data analysis right off the bat, we started determining, you know, where the, where the assets are sitting across the infrastructure. So 
what we kind of, I kind of use the, the model of, you know, never trust, double verify. So right now as we speak, uh, we're going through those connections, those external connections of how we're disseminating that sensitive information internally and externally, internally through commission program offices and externally out to our constituents and other energy utilities that we serve with. Um, what we're coming to find out is that just from the, from a legacy perspective, we haven't done enough continuous monitoring. So some of these connections that we've had into low-level systems, do we still need them? No, we really don't. And that kind of goes falls into our, um, when you're crediting a system, you go an A&A model, and you're now you're moving into a continuous monitoring, and we're testing controls more frequently. This is where we put a little bit more emphasis on access. Access is a primary control family that we look at more consistently now because of the data that we've identified within the infrastructure. Excellent question. Hi, uh, Frank Kidd from the Department of Labor. A number of universities are now offering degree programs in uh, cybersecurity. Are any of you aware of any efforts by uh, OPM or other agencies to try to work with these universities so that the students could get clearances before graduation? Because uh, having a clearance, I think, would be a very valuable asset to the students and also to uh, prospective employers. And it would also help them get internships before they graduate, which I was. When I was in school, I was very fortunate to be able to intern with IBM before I graduated, and that was a, a big help. I participated in some of the OPM forums that deal with uh, new graduates from college coming in, and also folks in the government who want to transition to cybersecurity. Now, I, d I don't know of any initiative where they actually give them or, or uh, provide them with a uh, clearance uh, through that process, but I know OPM is very, very interested in improving um, the talent pool, if you will, for the federal government. Um, just as a, as a bumper sticker, uh, we have uh, in the federal government, I recently just lost a couple of very, very good employees to companies who are willing to pay them $50,000 more than I can. That's hard to compete with. That's hard to compete with, yeah. And in some cases, more. So, so the, the problem is not going to go away. And one person just pointed out from the audience, uh, OPM gave agencies direct hire authority right. for cybersecurity among other IT. And, and the, my understanding is that if you can get hired, you can get your clearance a little more quickly versus getting the clearance first and then trying to get hired. All right, more questions. Uh, Wayne Anderson with McAfee. It's already come up uh, several times, right, this idea of public-private uh, partnership, the engagement model. Um, in cloud security and, and several other areas, actually. As you look at the industry partners in the room, and there are quite a few, right? If, do each of you have maybe a couple of bullet points of, of what you're looking for from industry to evolve to help with that trust, to help with that engagement model so we're not having the same conversation in two years? We get inundated. I, I'm sure these gentlemen and everyone here get inundated by the amount of calls that we get and the products and services that are offering. I have an agenda, I have a strategic plan, I have two top priorities per year on, on average, and what I'd like to see is kind of the consultancy of it, and you know, from start to finish. You know, here's my business problem, how do I solve that business problem, how do I get there from a procurement standpoint, and how do I implement and continue to train my staff um, years down the road when I'm implementing that service. I see that in some in some vendors of communities where they can provide that level, but it's not consistent. And I think that's kind of driving because I necessarily don't have the core competencies in my own shop 
to do all that work. And if I could pay for it to an extent and outsource that, I'd love to do that. At HHS, we have a security design and innovation group that does just what you're asking, takes in uh, input in the, in the form of briefings, uh, presentations, responses to uh, our RFIs and RFPs to understand what uh, the current level of offerings are in industry. Uh, this group tries to match it with the uh, CIO and CISO roadmap for the next couple of years. Our budgets, once we get them, are set for 18 and in large part for 19. So new things that we want to consider, we have to carve out of, of other areas that we're trying to do without an influx of money. So what helps me is patient, uh, patience on your part, regular engagements, establish, establishing an op-tempo uh, of uh, contact with this uh, SDI group at HHS. You're on our radar. We want to innovate. We are sometimes constrained by the way our budget process allows us to act. That's all the time we have for today. In this program, I featured excerpts from a panel I moderated with Federal Chief Information Security Officers. The panel took place at the CISO Summit, sponsored by the Advanced Technology Academic Research Center, or ATARC, in Washington, D.C. The CISO panel included Rod Turk from Commerce, Chris Walshin from HHS, Mattel Desai from FERC, and Bobby Stemfley from Carnegie Mellon and a former DHS cyber executive. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes. 